Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 17th, 2010, and my guest is Gary Belsky, editor-in-chief of ESPN, the magazine. Gary, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be on. Thank you for having me. What I'd like to do today is talk about what the job of editor of a major American magazine is like, the economic pressures that face the magazine business and media generally, and perhaps that face ESPN. Gary, in addition to being editor of the magazine, is also the author of a number of books. I hope we'll talk about those uh, at the end of the show. First, Gary, talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who think being editor of ESPN the magazine is maybe one of the coolest jobs you could possibly have in America. So they might want to imitate your career path, uh, and they're probably just curious about how you get a job like that. So tell us where you were and how you ended up where you are. It all began in a 5,000-watt radio station in Yuma, Arizona. <laughs> and by the way, it ends when you're making 40-year-old Mary Tyler Moore uh, jokes uh, to start radio interviews. Um, <laughs> I always, not always, I started writing uh, professionally when I was 16. Oddly enough, um, a friend of mine who was 17 was writing for a local paper in St. Louis, and I saw his byline, like a community paper, and I asked him. Uh, I had always been a pretty decent writer and started writing. Uh, he recommended me, which I think is funny because he was 17 to the editor of the paper, and I started doing stuff for them and getting paid. And, in fact, that's how I paid for college was by uh, doing a lot of freelance writing in St. Louis. The reason I'm mentioning that and going back so far was I never imagined that I could actually make a full-time living at it. I, I mean, I knew that people did, but in my own mind, uh, that was what people in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles did. St. Louis never had a particularly strong journalistic ferment. You know, I would say for the most part, there was the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and when I was growing up, the St. Louis Club Democrat, and St. Louis Magazine, and a couple of, you know, a lot of smaller community papers, and that was pretty much it. It's not a hotbed. Not a hotbed. So I, I went to the University of Missouri in St. Louis and graduated, and then went to law school, uh, and really didn't like law school. For the most part, I went to law school in order to play hockey, I realized, for the <laughs> college. The law school was Washington University, and they were starting a club-slash-varsity hockey program, and I played for them, and as soon as the hockey season ended, I realized I was very much uninterested in law school, <laughs> and, uh, and I quit, and I, I always joke that I paid $8,000 for a hockey uniform. Um, but I was casting about. I went and got my real estate license. Again, I was, had always been writing, but never thinking that I could make a living at it, and I was at a party uh, shortly after I quit law school, and I met a man who was uh, a very quirky fellow, and he wouldn't really tell me what he did. But he asked me a lot of questions at the, at the party table, and a few days later I got a call from the editor of the St. Louis Business Journal, which I'd never heard of. Uh, and she said uh, that I met her boss over the weekend, and she described him to me, and I said, oh, yeah, that's that weird fellow that was not wearing any socks with his suit and talked about the fact that he had a dog named Sally and a wife named Noodles and a son named Lucky, all of which is true. And she said, yes, that's my boss. She, he said I should meet you. Do you know why? And I said, no, I don't. She goes, well... He, he prides himself on, on identifying interesting people, so come on in. I came in, 
And, if, you know, we had a nice conversation. She recognized my byline from around St. Louis. And then a few months later, I'm shortening the story, which is already long, uh, she called me and offered me, asked me to come in again. And I came in again. And she said, you know, what are you planning on doing? And I was like, well, I'm thinking about going to journalism school or business school, both of which were kind of lies, but I couldn't say I'd been playing a lot of golf and staying in my mom's house. Uh, and so she said, well, you know, I think I can offer you both and I'll pay you. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, I think, you know, if you come work at the St. Louis Business Journal, I'll teach you about journalism and I'll teach you about business. Uh, and she was going to pay me at the time the princely sum of $15,000, which I thought was a lot of money. What, what year is this roughly? This 1984. Okay. And I took the job because uh, $15,000 seemed like a lot of money and it's because more than I had your no mother other paid. prospects whatsoever. More than your mother was paying you at the time. Exactly. And uh, it took me about two months of reporting on business to understand that I was woefully underpaid. <laughs> but um, I walked in, literally, I walked in, and uh, they still had, for about three months, I was working off of a typewriter, by the way, in 1984, but they were soon getting in a word processing system. But I walked in, and almost from the beginning, I knew that it was, I had, remember I had been doing journalism on my own, but uh, almost from the beginning, but this was a much better pedestal from which to operate. Almost immediately, I was like, oh, yeah, this is for me. Because I, I, uh, I did, my first piece for them was a profile of an architectural firm called Hemney Gen Ederling. They were one of the minor but significant hospital and public space architects. And I just remember thinking how cool it was that, uh, that Dick Hemney was uh, probably at the time my age now, about 50. Uh, for the record, I'm 48, but basically I'm pushing 50. And I remember thinking, like, it's cool that I'm 23 and he's giving me all this time because I'm from the St. Louis Business Journal. Sure. And I just liked it immediately, the idea that you get to ask questions, the idea that you get to tell a story, and... And I didn't know anything about business. This is something that, I, uh, that, that influences me to this day. I didn't know anything about business. My mom was an obstetrics nurse. My dad was an elementary school teacher. And my boss, that woman who hired me, Ellen Sherberg, the editor of the St. Louis Business Journal, she's still the publisher, I believe, she said, oh, business is, you can learn business on the, on, the, you know, on the fly. She goes, it's all storytelling and drama. And, of course, she goes, it's just often in the numbers. And that turned out to be very true. And I often think that business writing, whether or not it's for a business newspaper or a trade newspaper of any kind, um, a city business newspaper or a trade newspaper, is very good training for young journalists because it makes you be exact. It makes you understand a little bit of math and a little bit of economics and a little bit of uh, corporate strategy that, as you know, pretty much influences or is present in all of society and in all journalism. So I did that for two years. And did pretty well, and, and this will show you the, the level. It's, it never hurts to ask. After two years, I was thinking, okay, I need to leave St. Louis, and I want to go someplace else. And so it didn't occur to me not to go to the owner of the company and tell him that I was thinking of leaving, <laughs> and could he help me find a job somewhere else? Mr. Savvy. Yeah, exactly. It was like, and he went, oh, I don't... He, of course, said, sure, I like you. You should go work for the Philadelphia Business Journal or the Baltimore Business Journal, which are, were papers that they often owned. Bigger. And, and I said, Mark Vitter was his name, and I said, you know, if I'm going to leave St. Louis, which I love, how could you not? It's the home of the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, I said, if I'm going to leave St. Louis, which I love, I think I want to either go to Chicago or New York. And he said, oh, my friend Rance Crane, who is one of the two brothers who run Crane Communications, and they published Automotive News, still do, uh, Advertising Age, Coin Op Digest, the magazine for the coin-operated laundry industry. And they also published Crane Chicago Business and Crane's New York Business. And as you know, Crane Chicago Business, by the way, this is the longest answer to a question you've ever had in your entire uh, podcast no, history. No, because 
all my all my listeners know that Richard Epstein is longer, but go okay. ahead. Okay, so Crane Chicago Business was the original, uh, if I'm correct, was the original city business magazine. The Cranes uh, came up with the idea. They were business magazine publishers, but they realized that, still the case today, by the way, that's, that local newspapers don't do a very good job of covering local business. And that was the niche that they launched Crane's Chicago Business into. And it still proves correct. These are very, still very viable businesses. Uh, but anyway, you know, so, let me interrupt for a sec. Yeah. One of the reasons I think that's true, there are probably many reasons, but one of them is that it's your story is part of that story. The average newspaper doesn't have very many people who know very much about business. Correct. And so they're intimidated by going to cover the local CEO story or the local business that's even if it's thriving. And so right. the business that they cover is often the big. Kind of, they're almost in the, on the. They, but this is especially true a long time ago, but even still, on the coattails of national business news because that yeah. kind of gives them their clues and their, uh, you know, their kind of signifiers as to what they should be doing, covering the stock market, covering local publicly held companies, and that is important. But the real business, it's like politics, right? Yep. The real business in any town happens at the level of real estate development and small business develop creation. And retail trends and, and culture, traffic trends. And the culture of how easy it is to get things done at City Hall and all right, kinds exactly. of – Exactly. And, and uh, health care and things of that nature. It's a, and, and government, uh, exactly, as you were saying. It's, a, it's, it's still an underserved market, although better served by publications such as Crane's New York Business and the St. Louis Business Journal and Crane's New York Business. So Mark Vitter, my boss, uh, who met me at a party and thought I'd make a good business journalist – called his friend Rance Crane and said, you, I've got a kid who wants to move to Chicago or New York. You should at least talk to him. Um, and uh, in New York, I actually, I never talked to Rance at the time. I talked to the uh, editor of this and the publisher of the Crane's New York business and the editor of Crane Chicago business. And shortly after that, the editor of Crane's New York business, who's a man named Greg David, who is now, uh, he's like a, He's the uh, a columnist for Crane's New York Business, and he runs the business program of the City of University of New York's new journalism program. I don't know if anybody cares, but I think that's interesting that they actually opened up a journalism school. But he hired me. He offered me a job and brought me to New York. By the way, this is in 1986 for the princely amount of $32,000, which was not a bad amount in 1986. You doubled your salary and yeah, half. I was your... probably making 17 after two and, years at the business journal, so you almost doubled my salary. And lowered your standard of living, but, you know. It's... Exactly. <laughs> I, I always like to say that for the first seven years I was in New York, I lived in what you could either describe as a really, really, really crappy apartment or a fantastic tenement. <laughs> um, and, but I was very happy there. It would cost $750 a month in 1986. And um, I came and worked at Crane's New York Business and did pretty well. They, were, it was, it, they, were, they had just started up, and I came. It was funny because at the time they didn't want to bring me in as a reporter. They brought me in as a copy editor, which couldn't have been a bigger error. Like as good of, I'm now a very good line editor, and i am always been good with words, but copy editing is a very obsessive, compulsive, detail-oriented uh, profession. And I like talking to people and writing stories, not necessarily reading other people's stories, although I tried to do it well. But I remember we wrote up big cover story about a, uh, a real estate developer that was developing something in Union Square called Zeckendorf Towers, and the whole idea was that they were hoping to capitalize on the need to exchange 
uh, prestige for value. And in my editing of it, I said <laughs> they were hoping to capitalize on the trend to, ex- to exchange value for prestige. Yes. Literally, I completely reversed the thesis statement of the story. You're close. Of one of my best friends. It was a classic <laughs> moment. Yeah. Shortly after that... Uh, and all the right words. Yeah, exactly. Shortly after that, they realized, because uh, I had been doing a little bit of like small stuff for the newspaper, they, they moved me over full-time at Cranes to... Um, to covering Wall Street, which was really cool because I was having to compete with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal in local business coverage, yeah. right? Because it was one of the few beats that the Times and the Journal paid a lot of attention to. And I, I did it pretty well. You know, looking back on it, I'm, I'm proud of myself. Obviously, I, I had my scoops. I would do things that, that, um, that the Journal and the Times would have to follow. They would never give us credit, but that's okay because um, we were getting noticed and we were doing good work and Cranes was, was doing well. And so I did that for four years. And... Uh, the, the cranes were always, they, they, there was a couple of, and I have no idea if this stuff is interesting or not, but they taught me a couple of things that were really important to me in my life. One was uh, something small, which was at the time we wrote some fairly negative stories about Chemical Bank, which was one of the big New York Senate sure. money centers before it got acquired, I think, by Chase. And they were also big mid-market lenders. And so, as you can imagine, as big mid-market lenders, they were big, mar- they were big advertisers and cranes. New York business, and we wrote some pretty negative stories for us. I'm only 25 or 26 when this is happening, and they pull, a friend of mine wrote the stories. They were good stories. They were accurate, and, and Chemical Bank tried to muscle us not to run them, and then after we run them, we ran them, they basically said, uh, we're not going to do our advertising. And Rance Crane, uh, the, 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 one of the co-presidents of the company, he was operating out of New York and Chicago at the same time. He came to the office, and we talked about it, and he said, he was, I thought my friend was going to get in trouble. I thought we were going to be in trouble because it was a big number that they were pulling from the magazine. And he was like, no, 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 don't worry about it. If you guys keep doing this kind of journalism, they're going to have to come back. And it just taught me an v- important lesson, which was if you make the product well, even the people that you're kind of trampling on, not trampling on, but you're offending when you're doing good journalism, they will have to be back eventually because once their feelings get hurt, they'll know that everybody else is still reading it. Yeah. And it was just a really good lesson that has come up all the time in my career. And, and it was just a good thing for a 26-year-old journalist to hear. If you keep doing your job well, they'll have to come back. And the other thing was uh, he believed sometimes that we should you know, indulge our own curiosity and the time that we devote to any particular story if it's worthwhile. So Crane, as a company, used to let people do these really long investigative pieces, and I did one. Uh, they let me towards the end of my career there, although they did not know it was the end of my career there. In fact, this contributed to it being the end of my career there. They let me do a very, uh, to spend six months with a woman named Phyllis Furman uh, exploring a, what at the time was the greatest fraud in Wall Street history, a company called Crazy Eddie, which you'll remember, Russell. Oh, yeah, sure. It was a big consumer electronics firm. Yep. They were so big. They were parried. The, the commercials were crazy. They were parodied on Saturday Night Live. Yep, I remember. They were the biggest uh, IPO at the time, like in history, in terms of the stock really blowing up. And it turned out to be a gigantic fraud. And I wrote a, a, a pretty good, a very good And pretty good, story. pretty good. Come on. <laughs> uh, and it, it did well. It won some awards. Uh, it, it won a, a big award. And the only reason I'll mention that is because I, co- I won the award with Phyllis. It's called the Loeb Award. Within business journalism, it's kind of like the Pulitzer, unless you win the Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, which may be like saying it's, it's like the Oscars. It's like the Golden Globes are like the Oscars, unless you win the Oscars. But it was a big award, and I won it with Phyllis. And Phyllis became, as far as I know, the only person ever to win it t- two years in a row because she won it the next year with, with a long story on how AIDS, really the first big story about how AIDS was decimating the fashion industry. Uh-huh. Remember, this was 1990. Yeah. And how AIDS was really sort of ripping out a lot of the creative and business 
levels at the fashion industry because so many people in New York were dying. But anyway, I wrote that story. We won the award. The award got me some attention, uh, and I ended up um, getting a job at Money Magazine, uh, which was part of, still is, part of Time Incorporated. The editor of Money Magazine at the time was Frank Lolly, who, um, who is a very, very smart and commercial-minded editor. And it was interesting because... He hired me, uh, he was one of the judges, actually, of, of the award ceremony, and he came up to me at the dinner and said, hey, he just said some nice things about the story. And I, afterwards, I remember I sent him a letter, because this was 1990, saying, I'm starting, I never really thought I wanted to do personal finance, and I was starting to get interviews with other magazines, and I didn't really know how to decide what to do. And I wrote him a letter saying, asking him for advice, you know, like, hey, I'm getting a lot of offers from different places or at least a lot of interest, I just thought you might be somebody good to advise me. I mean, I wasn't completely unaware that it's flattering to be asked to give advice, and he called sure. me in and he gave me advice about, it was about Forbes and the Wall Street Journal, I was talking to Newsday, I think, and at the end of it he said, have you ever thought about working here? And I said, well, no, not really, because I don't know much about personal finance, and he said, I can teach you about personal finance, and eventually it made me a job offer. By the way, I always tell people this story. I, uh, I teach at NYU, and I tell my kids this story. Just always call back, because I interviewed with him. He had me come and interview with about five or six other people, and then I never heard from them. And I called him back about two months later and said, I was just curious whatever happened or why I didn't get the job. He was like, what do you mean you didn't get the job? Nobody called you to offer you the job. Yeah. And I was like, no, no sir. No, he that's goes, my... Oh, yeah, we, we want you to have the job. He was a little less focused on you than you were exactly, on him. Than I would have imagined, right? It's a good um, lesson in life. I wrote, I, 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 as, you, as you mentioned earlier, I wrote a book called the. Uh, I wrote a book about a field called behavioral economics, and one of and my co-author is a guy named Tom Gilovich, who's a professor at Cornell. And Tom wrote a paper uh, and did a study actually about something that he calls, and that's pretty accepted now, the spotlight effect. It's a great little. Uh, piece of research that he did to prove it. But it's basically the idea that we all think everybody's paying way more attention to us yeah. than they are. Yeah. But anyway, so they offered me a job at Money Magazine after I called and, and, and reminded them that they wanted to do that. And uh, I worked there for eight years. And the, the interesting thing about, about money was it was a very, very good time for personal finance. The stock market was still exploding. It was a very good time for the kind of personal finance that Frank Lally liked to do because he was basically... Uh, he was basically a proponent of two kinds of journalism, both of which I like. One was enterprise journalism, meaning we would come up with ways in which to look at the world, you know, rating the airlines for customer service, which nobody had done yet, you know, coming up with the best places to live in America now. That was a Money Magazine, Frank Lolly invention, things like that, enterprise journalism. And the other thing he was a big fan of was advocative journalism. He saw himself and he saw the magazine as the advocates for the middle class, right? We recognize that. Really rich people probably weren't reading Money Magazine because they had financial advisors, and really poor people probably weren't reading Money Magazine, they need even though to. They, might, they ought to have because they didn't think of themselves as needing it, having yeah. enough money to worry about. But that the great middle class uh, of America, lots of people were reading the magazine, and he was just generally championing them. And by the way, one of the hard things about working at that magazine was every story you wrote, as much as any other place I've ever been, you felt you had to be right because people were making decisions from it. They Correct. were buying insurance or buying real estate or selling stocks or buying mutual funds, whatever it might be because, you know, potentially of the, of the advice you gave them. So it was, you had to take it seriously because, you know, people's lives depended on it. Um, and, he, and Frank was also very early on the idea that people who were doing print could also be on TV. So a lot of my job was 
doing TV appearances uh, as an expert on money, personal finance, economics a little bit. As you know, I, I never would offer myself up as an expert in economics, but I was talking most of what I learned, I learned from you, and we didn't really know each other that well. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't know very much. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. But I would, you know, I had a regular gig on Good Morning America and a regular gig on a show on CNN called Your Money, and I had a regular thing on the mutual broadcasting system for Jim Bohannon show, and I would do, you know, guest spots on Oprah and hard copy and inside edition, like on a hard, you know, and you might wonder what was a hard copy and inside edition, wanting with a personal finance guy. Well, when Jackie O died, I could talk about her estate. Yeah. When Roseanne Barr was getting divorced, I would come on and talk about, you know, divorce law and divorce, you know, and the, the, the financial implications of it. It was a very smart strategy from the people who were thinking about uh, the magazine's profile and how you, they, uh, we could Credibility, get... reputation. Exactly. So that was just, and it was also just great fun, and I loved it. And, you know, I could write a cover story for Money Magazine and hear from nobody, and I would do four minutes on uh, Inside Edition, and uh, people I went to grade school with sure. would call me up. Um, Welcome to the lovely world of television. Exactly. Empty but gratifying. So, <laughs> somewhat gratifying. It's funny, so... At the end of the, towards the end of the 90s, about 97, or I think they, um, there was a little bit of a coup at Time Incorporated, and the, uh, a large number of the editors who ran Money Magazine, you know, were like uh, Felix Unger in The Odd Couple, were, in, you know, were invited to leave. Um, and they, they kept me around mostly because I was not important enough to fire or to, you know, uh, to sort of ease out, but also I think a little bit because I had all of the TV gigs. And I stayed around. There were perfectly nice people who came in to run the magazine, but I was sort of thinking already, like, okay, maybe time to move on. And I was starting to write books. Um, and I was starting to write books specifically. The first book, or one of the first books I wrote was this book about behavioral economics. And behavioral economics, one of the main principles is that, in general, people can have too much information. And the more information you have, the more likely you are to want to make decisions with that information or at least want to think you should make decisions. And uh, it's not very good for people's personal finance to get a magazine that every month is telling them the 10 best stocks to buy now or the 10 best funds <laughs> to buy now or, you know, in general, the way you sell personal finance magazines is probably not the way you should run your life from a personal finance point of view. So I was kind so, of seeing so a little... even, even though you're running their lives, they're taking all your advice, you're kind of maybe not – you're feeling a little bit uneasy about that. Correct. I'm so, there's a, you know, I always sort of say that it was, there was a dissonance. It was, you know, you were, you were just nervous about sort of – whether or not, if you were starting to think with your executive two functions, you were kind of thinking like, is this really the way we should be sort of, if you're studying behavioral economics, you're starting to think, am I doing people the best service? Because mostly, you know, I always like to tell people, and it's simplifying it, but not far from being 100% true, if you, if you put yourself in a mediocre mutual fund and stayed there without moving for 20 years, you were almost always better off than if every year you put yourself in last year's best mutual fund. Right. And, you know, because chasing returns ends up being a fool's game, and the more you can just be with the market, the better off you are. But you can't write a magazine that every week says, <laughs> Stay the course. <laughs> keep, keep, hold that mediocre mutual fund. You're doing fine. Exactly. People don't pay for that. They want to know what the hottest, best, better. Exactly. Yeah. I so, started asking around, and uh, ESPN was launching. Uh, a magazine to compete with Sports Illustrated, basically, in the simplest of terms. And a couple of friends of mine 
had gone there, I had never thought to be a sports journalist. I had written a couple of pieces for Sports Illustrated in the 90s because that was one of the places at the time where if you were a serious writer, you wanted to have your stuff show up because in the 90s and the 80s especially, Sports Illustrated was really, you know, doing a lot of very, very good, just sort of sharp Feature writing. writing. Feature writing. So I'd done a couple pieces for them, but never thought about being a sports journalist. But I called my friend who was the managing editor there. Her name was Lynn Cromando. And she goes, I was just calling her because she knew a lot of people. You know, she's kind of like you are, uh, I think, in economics, or I am in journalism. I, I, I keep in touch with a lot of people, and she was one of those people. So good I was Rolodex. like, hey, I think I'm starting to look for a job. Um, keep your, keep your you know, ears open for me and, and let me know if you hear of anything. And she said, oh, it's funny because we've hired all of our staff for the startup, but we have one position left. It's, it's a lower position probably than you should go for, and it's an editing job, but I think you might like it if you're presuming you're a sports fan. She had no idea. Uh, but the job was basically kind of editing humor and editing quirky stuff about sports, and I ultimately got the job. When the magazine first came out, I remember talking to you about it and saying, it's weird-looking. Uh, it's hard to read. There's a lot going on. Uh, I find myself not finishing the stories. I find myself not wanting to start some of the stories. And I, I mention that because you're talking about, about editing the humor. And some people out there are subscribers, surely, to the magazine, but many people have never seen it. It's an unusual thing. You don't think of a sports magazine as being having humor obviously could, but I think part of what has made ESPN so distinctive is its embrace of the fact that it's not exactly a sports magazine, which is weird because it's obviously a sports magazine. Yeah, well, I think we always, it's tricky, right? Because first of all, I think it's probably different things to different people. And I think in a funny way, in general with consumer products, that's probably more of a reality than people want to admit. But I think the magazine is different things to different people. So, you know, we always say we don't take ourselves seriously. We take sports seriously. And the reason we take sports seriously is because our subscribers do. On the other hand, they see sports as part of an entertainment continuum, most of them. Generally, if you're going to, if you're a 45-year-old man and you're going to a blog or website that's following recruiting for a college, you're probably taking sports a little bit more seriously than the average person. But most people recognize that sports is part of the entertainment uh, spectrum and so you know it's meant to be fun and it's meant and we wanted to replicate the conversations that people were having when they watched TV uh, a game on TV at a bar in a living room whatever in a dorm whatever it might be and people rarely watch sports and don't crack jokes right people rarely watch sports even when you know sometimes they do sometimes they pause because it's a really sad story and a moving story or an inspirational story and the magazine had a lot of that too but we've always recognized that a part of this is just like, oh, come on, please. And it's the oh, come on, please that we wanted to always have in the magazine. We've changed over the years, by the way, because quite frankly, we've been mimicked a lot. And quite frankly, you know, there are websites that have the entire attitude that the magazine used to have, just nastier or more blogged up. Or not as funny or whatever. Whatever. But they're trying. You know, I don't even know how funny we were. Sometimes I'm sure we were trying to be funny and we were not. But in general, we were trying to be light and quirky. And I think we were always that. Sometimes, not for nothing, we were impenetrable and undecipherable. (laughs) but, But as a marketing strategy, it strikes me as analogous somewhat to Car Talk. So Car Talk is this NPR program about cars where people call in. 
They don't really call in, by the way. It's it's kind of a, a fake call-in show, but they appear to call in. It's They're screened in advance. Uh, but they call in and they ask questions, and the hosts are these two Boston-accented guys who are very funny. And they do give car advice, of course, along the way. But the charm of the show is the humor, not the car advice. The car advice is the excuse to be entertaining, to be diverting, to be funny. And a lot of product out there is doing the same thing. To some extent, you're doing that with sports as a vehicle. Exactly. We're also, um, you asked me uh, in, the, in your pre-interview, and people I'm sure are, are, are very impressed that you're doing pre-interviews. Um, oh, yeah. It must have gone at least 40 seconds. You were asking me about competition, right? And we see ourselves as competitors as much with uh, young men's magazines and websites and TV shows and channels as we do with conventional sports magazines and websites and TV shows. Well, let me get to the end of that story when I said I, I couldn't read oh, the magazine, yeah. which was, at that time, when did the magazine, when did it debut? Uh, it, launched, it, was, it launched officially in, as it is now in March of 98. So that was 12 years ago. I'm 43 years old at that point, and I'm complaining to you, not complaining, but I'm making an observation. You're saying, how do you like the magazine? And I'm telling you, and when I finish my point about it's hard to follow and I don't find myself wanting to finish all the stories, and I'm a huge sports fan, as everybody out there knows, uh, which so it surprised me. You said kind of condescendingly, well, actually, Russell, it's not written for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's written for a different demographic and a different set of eyeballs, so. Yeah, we were aiming for you know eighteen to thirty four year old men, and yeah. our median age to this day has stayed. It started out at about twenty nine, and it rose to about thirty one, and it stayed at thirty one really for about eight or nine years, which is where we mean to keep it. Half our readers are below thirty one. Now, having said that, we've changed a little bit. I do want you to be able to read it and see stories, and you know, with the font has gotten a little bit bigger, and you know, and increasingly, our design is going away from from so many things happening on a page because at the time we were revolutionary. I'm not kidding. No, no it was a very edgy and right. we had fat. a, we had a design director named Darren Perry who, who was a genius who subsequently uh, uh, died uh, a few years later. But Darren believe Darren was trying to mimic the, the internet at the time. He was trying to mimic the sort of video game internet kind of influence at the time people made fun of us for, but it's, you know, so many people have gone there now in magazines, but so well, we Wired, were, Wired was doing it some at right. the time. And, you know, now the opposite is true. Probably, we're, we're trying to actually be now more, more magaziney in the old school sense, simply because people are coming to magazines for respite from the screens, right? Sure. People are now coming to magazines because they actually want to lean back a little bit and just sort of read a little bit more slowly, even longer stories uh, in which you could read those on. Those actually work on devices, mobile devices, iPad, iPhone. It's actually just more enjoyable to read a longer story if you like it with the pictures right there big and also with the um, with you know being able to you know literally flip pages is yeah, still sure. a, a physically satisfying experience and also just easier to read off page. So talk about what it's like to be on a day-to-day basis what your job is like. What happens is is every day the same uh, or are they all different? What what is your when do you get to work? When do you leave? And what goes on in the middle? I probably get to work uh, about you know eight thirty or eight, and I probably leave around six thirty or seven. And it can be extreme envelope pushing to both sides of that equation <laughs> of that of that schedule. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and we like to run our office uh, fairly flexibly, both because we want to be a place where. Uh, Parents can work 
and still thrive. Not just moms, by the way, obviously moms. But so, you know, the office hours are officially 10 to 6. We have some people who, you know, are, you know, certainly push the envelope on the, lo- on the 10 o'clock, but only because they're spending time with their kids in the morning and they might be working till 8 or 9 at night. Yeah. Uh, so we let people kind of, you know, deal with schedules as they want as long as they don't miss a lot of meetings and they get their work in on time. So uh, that's how I work as well, uh, although I've learned that as a boss. So meaning I might, you know, I'm involved with a couple of nonprofits and I do a lot of other stuff and I have to be in Bristol, Connecticut, where ESPN is headquartered a lot. So I'm often doing work at night and I'm not worried about whether or not I'm earning my money or not or working too hard because I can often leave during the day if I have to do something else. Uh, But I have learned not to email my staff on the weekends or at night unless I indicate to them that they don't need to respond to me until the next day. Because when the boss emails at night or emails over the weekend, people feel compelled to respond, even if you don't need them to because you're the boss. Yep. And it's a really bad habit to get into unless they, you tell them. So now I want to show you that, that they're they're just working just as hard as you are, if right. not harder. And so what I you know I'm often emailing simply because I want to get it out of my yeah, head. Right. I know. Sure. So I'll literally now send an email, be like, "Hey, we should think about doing X, Y, and Z. No need to respond till Monday." And that just that solves it. Then they don't feel bad that they're getting something from me, and they because even if I explain to them, "Hey, you don't have to respond to me if I email unless I say that," they don't know that. Of course, if I um, were on your staff, Gary, I would respond right away because Monday it would be eight hundred emails down the chain and I'd never see it. Well, I try to make, we, we've kind of pretty much avoided that a little bit. So, or, you know, in, increasingly. Um, it's a lot, you know, my job now, probably 10% of it is actually editing stories, you know, on the screen, going through it, which is, which is fine. I shouldn't need to be doing that much more because if I'm doing my job correctly, yeah, sure. I'm setting things in motion before stories are conceived, reported, written, or edited. At every stage of that, I want to be talking to my editors, talking to the writers, and saying, here's where I think the story's going, here's where I think it should be shot, here's where I think we want it to be designed, you know, broadly. And I like to give my staff a wide, vari- a wide uh, berth in terms of creativity, so I'll tell them what I want the story to do and leave it to them to figure out how to do it. And this is me describing myself in an idealized way, of course. the way that bosses tend to do. Of I'm course, sure I'm a yeah. micromanager at times when I shouldn't be. Yeah. But generally that's what I'm trying to do, So because my job is increasingly taken up with phone calls and emails and dealing with people's, you know, with management problems and dealing with, you know, long-term planning and interacting with other people at ESPN in terms of coordinating what we're doing on TV with the network or on the website with our own paid website, which is called Insider, or ESPN.com, which is the bigger uh, giant sports website. So it's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of, of, of phone calls and emailing, probably two hours a day, is spent on email. I'm trying to get uh, better at that. I have found that if you don't respond to emails until the end of the day, it turns out almost everything works out just fine, and if people really need you, they actually call you or come into your office. So I've been doing a little bit better with that by not actually answering emails all the time immediately, which is... You can spend, I'm sure you can spend all day doing that if you wanted, if you um, weren't careful. Yeah, I mean, I probably, I actually, I think sometimes people try to be overly like... uh, you know, standing in front of the mirror, flexing when they talk about emails. I probably, if I literally <laughs> didn't manage my emails, I'd, I would spend about three hours a day. Okay. I don't think, you know, I probably get three to 400 emails a day. A good 100 of them can just be discarded, even if they're important. I can look at them and don't have to respond. But there's probably about 200 emails out of the 400 that I need to respond to. And that can be anything from okay to, you know, something long. But I'm 
getting better at that. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a, it's basically that. It's, you know, and the, it's, the job feels very different every day. Um, it wow. goes very quickly each day. But that's always been the case in my career, I have to say. It's just always been one of the things I liked about journalism is it feels varied and fast-paced, even so, when it's just internal and you're just going from thing you're reading to thing you're reading. So let me ask you two sports questions because you know, one of my favorite things in the world is how hard it is to run a restaurant. And people who like to eat think they would be good at running a restaurant, which, of course, there's no relationship or very little. Uh, so I think in the back of some people's minds, uh, if you're going to be the editor of ESPN the magazine, you should be a big sports fan and very knowledgeable about sports. So I, two questions were: the first is, among your staff, how would you say you rate as a sports fan and as a knowledgeable sports fan? So sports fan, I mean, how much do you care? And then knowledgeable is how much do you know? And then my second related question is, how much of your day is related to sports? Okay, uh, how much do I care? On the level of my own teams, I'm, I'm very passionate, probably a solid A. On the level of sports in general, I'm probably a solid A minus. I'm probably a solid B plus. My staff, I would say, on average is probably the same. We have some A pluses and we have some B minuses. Uh, I don't need them. They're all fans. Of some, you know, sometimes they're fans of, you know, weightlifting and and track and field, which is hardly what we spend a lot of our time paying attention to. But I just want them to understand fandom, right? It's like we are big believers that uh, a magazine like ours should be populated half by people who really come up from a traditional sports background, and the other half from people who are fans or understand fans, but who actually come from a very distinct background other than sports, because it helps you think outside of the box. We sure. are. We are we mean to be different than uh, most other sports platforms, and so one of the ways you become different is by not fetishizing sports journalism experience, but rather making a premium of people having a lot of diverse experience, being in- intelligent, and being able to learn and appreciate that, uh, what our readers might want and what they might enjoy being surprised by. So I would say my avidity uh, is a little bit lower than the average person on my staff, but it's probably just slightly below the average. If the median is, you know, a B plus, I'm probably a B, you know, almost, I'm probably almost a B plus. So how about the other part? How much of your day is related to sports versus running a magazine, you know, running, being a manager, dealing with corporate, all those? I would say about about 40% of my job is about sports itself. Thinking it may be, how do we do our travel issue? We have a new issue coming out uh, uh, on travel. And maybe how do we make a travel issue that's about sports that's interesting, and that's an intellectual problem, but it's still, I have to figure out, you know, I do a story about fans and players on a team cruise, and I do a story about, you know, we have to figure out, you know, what travel means. Part of it's about moving a NASCAR team from race to race, and part of it's about players going on R&R and what that means for them in the off season. So it's not, you know, it's a magazine maker's problem, but it's about sports. Yeah. So I have to know, and I have to know what matters, what might be interesting to sports fans in order to make that stuff work. So yeah, I would say about forty percent. You mentioned a minute ago the, Is that more or less than you thought. Oh, I have no idea. I, that's why I'm asking. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think most of us out here know what it's like. And I think there's a certain fantasy, like being a restaurateur, that it's about food. 
And of course, it's not all about food. It's about inventory control and keeping your right. chef happy, and it's about figuring out how to get your turnover changed. And, and how much of your career is about economics? It's um, higher than forty percent, I'm guessing. Yeah, but it's highly variable uh, in that there there is a chunk. Uh, it, it 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 depends what you mean by economics. It's higher than it's a lot higher than forty percent for sure. But if if you th- if you mean by it thinking deeply about stuff and trying to figure stuff out, it, it's it might be twenty five to thirty compared to say a typical academic that might be more like fifty to seventy. So I, you know I'm doing I do a lot of education writ large or try to, and I'm always trying to think of things that I haven't understood well enough that I want to explain better and I don't know whether you call that economics or not. It's you know, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question. But but I ask you the question because I think there's a certain glamour about your job uh that most people probably presume and it's although I'm sure it is glamorous, uh it's not as glamorous probably as it would appear to be from the outside. I'm sure there's a lot of Yeah, I would say it's generally uh pretty cool it's often it's never tedious it's often very high pressured uh and you know management oriented and and all that means both the gratification of making decisions that affect lots of people and thinking that those are good decisions and the stress of having to manage lots of people and uh big budgets and it periodically spikes into ecstatic moments of I can't believe I'm here and getting to do this kind of situations, right? Some of that's when you come up with an idea for, I assume, a story that just I wasn't you even love. talking about that, which is fun. That's just sort of the generally cool part, right? That I can be reading a magazine or seeing something going, hey, wait, what if we did this? And then that can turn into something. I was meaning, you know, being at the ESPYs on the red carpet, seeing Serena Williams and going up to her and saying, hey, we're thinking of having you be the cover of a new issue we want to do called the body issue and having her saying, yeah, I'm interested. And that should yeah. be like, that's pretty fun. She doesn't know who I am, but I can <laughs> go up to her and say, sure. I'm the editor of the, in the magazine. And she's been in the magazine many times. And she'd be like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? And we have a good conversation. And she gives me guff for having Maria Sharapova be the guest editor of the athletes issue, you know, friendly guff because they're rivals. And she was like, how can you have Maria? Why didn't you have me? And I said, well, actually, I was thinking about you to do the cover of the body issue, which had gotten some press, so she knew what it was. And she was like, oh, I'm interested in that. Better. Yeah. And that's cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then, uh, by the way, and then I got done with her, and I saw, I heard the announcer say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Adrian Peterson of the Minnesota Vikings. And I was like, oh, yeah, he'd be good for the body issue, too. <laughs> and I literally walked over to him and said the same thing to him, differently, obviously. And he was like, yeah, that's good. I'd like to do that. I like my body. Yeah. And he ended up being on, you know, yeah. uh, one of our covers. So that's just very cool. After the... When I, when the, um, I do a fair amount of traveling for work, you know, to events, but not that much because I really want my editors and really my writers to go. But when the Arizona Cardinals, which are far and away my favorite team of all time, because they used to be in St. Louis and it was the first team I fell in love with, when they improbably made it to the NFC Championship game two years ago, my boss, who had been editor of ESPN the magazine, I, I host a radio show with him, uh, on Sirius, and he knows about my Cardinals love, my football Cardinals love, and he came into my office and said, are you going to Arizona for the championship game? And I was like, nah, he goes, you're editor of ESPN the magazine. If you don't go to that game, you're an idiot. <laughs> and I went, and they won, and I was sitting in the locker room 
with a whole bunch of naked football players kind of going, I can't believe I'm here, not because they were naked, but because I could be the 12-year-old boy I was. Sure. Being a huge fan of Jim Hart and Conrad Dobler and Terry Metcalf, never imagining that I could be in the locker room when this team was about to go to the Super Bowl. And Larry, you know, Larry Fisher? They, what's that? Larry Fisher? Uh, Larry Wilson, who invented the safety blitz. Very okay, good. Sorry. Uh, but, you know, that kind of, there's just not that many jobs where that, you know, happens to you. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. How about the, un- could you talk about any of the unfun parts, or is that? Um, the, what I was going to say is that the, the, the unfun parts are not at all specific to um, ESPN or sports. The unfun parts are dealing with the problems of staff and, you know, the kind of, ongoing recognition that most of the problems you deal with when you're dealing with staffers are not work problems, but them problems, meaning yeah, people, people are, are they are at work in the chemistry. Same way. It's chemistry. It doesn't right. always work. And out. it's about, you know, it's not a function of the job that they're unhappy. It's a function of their life, or it's not a function of, of their assignment that they're struggling. It's a function of something going on in their home or, yeah. you know, like that. Uh, so the, I don't think, so I would, I would say on average, the, the unfun parts in my job have much less to do with the specifics of my job than the nature of jobs in general. I think on a, you know, if you could grade a scale, if you had a scale of that, which is every job has unfun parts, what percentage of your job is about what you're doing specifically as opposed to just jobs, mine is far to the left. Yeah. If I'm making this up, if a lot of what's bad about being a coal miner is actually about being in a coal mine, right? Yep. On a scale of zero to hundred, that's probably ninety. The job specificity is contributing to the unfun parts. Mine is probably a ten. Yeah. There's very little about my job about being a sports editor that actually is in and of itself intrinsically bad. I would say so. If you still ask me, okay, what are those? Um, it's frustrating sometimes to deal with. It's two things. It's frustrating sometimes to deal with agents. Uh, because they can be, you know, they're very protective of their clients and often overestimate the importance of their clients sure. in, the, in the spectrum of, or in the zeitgeist. And that's just frustrating and a little bit annoying. And also, um, there is at a level of fandom uh, the heroism of the Internet, what we like to call it, or the heroism of the keyboard, which is, otherwise perfectly nice people who you could have any number of conversations about sports with in person when they are allowed to send emails or more importantly, uh, make comments on the internet. They allow their id to come out and get extraordinarily nasty. But what, what actually saves me from this is a, is a weird thing. And I think it's probably, uh, it's actually, it's, I think it's actually a very Catholic idea, or even probably a very Jewish idea, mystically, which is, it's actually, people aren't more mean than we think. The web allows people's inner thoughts to come out. And one of the beauties about social interactions is, we are all capable of really mean thoughts. Oh, yeah. We just don't do them interpersonally because we learn to control it. Yeah. Superego, right, I guess? Yeah, I don't know, but I... Whatever it's called. And it's actually the good thing about society, the good thing about religion, the good thing about all sorts of manners is, it keeps us from being our worst self. But those worst selves are there. And so when I read ugliness on the web, 
what I tell myself is, oh yeah, this isn't actually about people being more mean than I thought. This is about people being allowed to be their worst self, which is maybe not such a bad thing if you think if it's only there. It can, it can cause harm. I and, like that. It's, well, you know what I mean? It, it, was, it was really helpful to me because it could get you very depressed. But then it's basically what happens with the knowledge when you sort of sometimes... I once had the experience of reading somebody's letter about me by accident when I was like 22 or 23, and it was really helpful because it made me realize you never want to read people's minds. This was somebody who really cared a lot about me. It was a girl, by the way, of course. Yeah. Uh, who really cared a lot about me but wasn't interested in me romantically, and she was writing a friend about it, and I actually happened to see it. Ow. And she wasn't even mean about me. No, she no, was no. just honest. Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, you never want to read people. By the way, we ended up dating, and she ended up falling <laughs> in love with me. But at the time, she wasn't, and she was, in fact, wanting to stay very far away from me. But it really it made me realize, like, yeah, you don't want to read people's minds. The reason why we have speech is because it's a good way to edit all the, the things that it's go through filter. our head. And I think about that story all the time when I'm reading blog posts because it's like, oh, yeah, this is, I'm getting to see people's thoughts. I don't want to see people's thoughts, but if I do, I have to recognize that they're just almost um, impulsive, you know, instinctual, atavistic uh, thoughts, not necessarily what they would present to the world if, had, if they had to be held accountable. With, say, uh, their own name attached to it. Exactly. So, so this is my opportunity, of course, to make, uh, as I like to do in many podcasts, many episodes of Econ Talk, to mention the work of Hayek. So what you're saying is that there's a Hayekian emergence of norms and, and social conventions that keeps people civilized. Thank, thank God, because otherwise it's, um, it's pretty nasty out there. What did they call those emergences before uh, Hayek invented them? I don't know. Culture. Uh, okay. Civilization. Civil society. So the, the invisible yeah, hand. By the way, I love Hayek. I know you do. So I want to go back to something before we – we're getting close to out of time. But I want to go back to something you said in passing about your staff listening to what readers want. In your position, and you're part of a very large, really – a big conglomerate. I'm thinking about what readers want, by the way. Yeah, well, I know. You were precise. But I'm curious how in that situation, being part of a large conglomerate that has a lot of resources, even in today's struggling media world, um, how do you find out what people want? What well, do, what are I've your thinking because we do surveys, we do focus groups, we do quantitative research, but I, we do not want all of it to depend on what people tell you they want or even necessarily what they will go to because, first of all, I don't – want to run a magazine that will be loved where all where 90% of it will be loved by 90% of it. I want to, I mean, I guess that wouldn't be bad, but I think that would actually be a magazine that would very quickly get boring. I want to do a magazine in which people generally like it for sometimes meeting their expectations and hardly ever failing it in a way that's insulting and periodically surprising them in a way that's delightful. And so we do research and we get lots of letters and we look at our blog posts when we are, are the comments when we post things online. But in general, I want to hire well a cross-section of sports fans and let them, and I can do this because a magazine's economic model is slightly different. I don't necessarily have to sell, you know, page hits. But I think actually I want to do a mixture of, of art and science. I want to know what people like and remember and come back to. But I also hear in focus groups and see in the quantitative research that people like being surprised. They, but they want to continually be surprised by, uh, in ways that surprise them, which I know sounds funny, but they want yeah, people they trust mean. to give them yeah. uh, Delight. presence, yeah. you know, un- unknowable Delight. presence. How much attention do you pay to circulation? 
and ad, uh, and ad revenue. We pay a fair amount of attention to it, mostly to the extent that we want to, you know, you want to see whether or not people are not renewing or at a higher pace than normal or canceling at a higher pace than normal. But those are sea change things, right? They're secular. They're not immediate. If you, if tomorrow I started doing the magazine in Sanskrit for a while, I'd still have two million circulation. Yeah, <laughs> two million subscribers. It would take a while before subscribers would be like, "What the heck's wrong with these people? I don't want to read a, ma- a magazine in Sanskrit and start canceling." So you can't, you know, you look at it over over longer one and two and three year periods, uh, and not so much day to day. So, how, going back to our earlier question about your your day. Email, meetings, some travels, a little bit of editing. How much of your day, or maybe it's how much of your month, do you get to sit around either with your feet up on the desk or with other staffers trying to imagine that delight or that new, like the body issue is a very clever, interesting, Um, different thing. We probably do it every day, but in, in my part of the job, I used to probably do it an hour or two hours a day, really kind of, and now I get to do it in, five or ten minute spurts four or five times a day. But I think it's sort of go like, you know, somebody, will, uh, a staffer will mention an idea to me, I'll be like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And then right then I'm pretty good at just doing this because of my personality is a little bit, I'm able, to, I'm able to do transitioning well from one idea to the other, which I just think is an advantage in the kind of job I have, which is I can be thinking about something, somebody can come in and talk to me about an idea, and I can actually switch gears pretty quickly and get excited about him and ideate right there and then move on. And so I probably do that four or five times a day. That's certainly one of the things that really gives you an, uh, 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 a thrill. And not for nothing, if you have the right staff, which I do, you have the confidence of knowing you can, they can give you an idea or you can give them an idea. The two of you or the five of you can talk about it for ten minutes and, then, and you can contribute. And if you're me, I, think, I, I like to think I contribute, you know, significantly, and then they go off and they take your significant contributions and multiply it by three, and all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing the fruits of it, and it's like, wow, that really went exactly in the direction I wanted to, and also took a left turn that I didn't expect to make it even better. A little delight for you. You know, that's, that's, that's the advantage of being in a, a highly creative job, although, quite frankly, I'm sure that happens in every job, because if you're in sales and somebody comes up with a new sales technique or a new sales strategy, that's also creative. I think people, whenever people talk about creative jobs, I think it's a little bit uh, narrow-minded some because snobbery. all jobs have to be creative. Yeah, there's some snobbery. Yeah. Uh, talk about the future. Uh, what, well, let, me, let me ask it differently. You guys, as you said, you have ESPN, the, the Insider, which is a, a pay service, which is rare on the Internet. Internet sites are struggling to f- monetize their content. Yeah, I think we're like the second or third largest in the world or, that's not about pornography. And the Wall Street Journal would be in the top three. Wall Street Journal is number one. I think... We're either number two, and by the way, I don't know if there's something in, you know, South Africa, but of, in sort of like the Western Europe and, and America, I think the Wall Street Journal is number one. I think we're number two, and I think... We don't need to know what's number three. But anyway, you guys are very successful at it, and you've got a, a magazine, which some of them are dying, but you're a thriving magazine. What do you think you've done right, and where do you think the rest of the world's going in the next five to ten years as we look at the changes going on? Well, Russell, I'm glad you asked me that question because I know exactly what I've done I right. Know. And, I'm a, and I'm a bit of a genius. Well, that's... I am the one <laughs> who says every day, don't take those four letters ESPN off the cover of our magazine. <laughs> and by not taking those letters off my magazine, I have managed to keep us uh, yeah. at the vanguard of print publishing. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, meaning like, I, you know, I don't want to say 
anything is more important than the fact that we are part of a, a really good brand yeah, that sure. people trust. And I don't yeah. mean that in a, oh, I, I wonder if my boss is listening, because I'm almost assured that he's not, uh, even though he would love the show. Oh, um, it's, it's a really good brand, and I think you know, more often than not, we execute uh, our print version of it to a level that meets the or exceeds the expectations of the people who pay us um, to read or to advertise in it. Uh, beyond that, I think we have done a couple of good things, especially over time, which is we have remained very much committed to magazines as a magazine experience. We have uh, iPhone and iPad extensions in development or already out there. We have a paid website that actually is daily and very much recognizes what you can do daily versus what you can do when you're, you come out every two weeks, and we have accentuated those two things. We are making the magazine more luxurious, and I don't mean, you know, uh, yeah, actually I do mean more luxurious, focusing more on, on the images that we take and the stories that we write and the design that we use to sort of take advantage of a very big canvas that is very much about a magazine and magazineness. And I think we've done well by doing that, and we have bosses who are committed to it. As you might imagine, I'm, I'm, I can't discuss uh, ESPN's economics with you, but it wouldn't shock you to know that the television part of our company earns much more than the magazine part of our company. You, you, uh, you shock me. By <laughs> orders of magnitude, by orders of orders of magnitude. Sure. But we're, the company's committed to it for the simple reason that it's a different experience that still sort of matters to people. We're still on newsstands and airports and bookstores, and we are still arriving very much right there in people's mailboxes uh, every two weeks, two million at a time, and that, you know, oftentimes depending on the numbers and way that, you know how much you believe them, about 14 million people see our issues every every two weeks, and they are aware that it's a you know it's a singular kind of experience. So we don't forget that we are not trying to compete with anybody. We're not trying to be newsy. We're not trying to be anything other than ourselves. And I think in the future, the magazines that will succeed will be magazines that recognize it. I have to tell you, from all of our focus groups and stuff, people like having the physical product. They often refer back to it. They, they will, and they like, the, they like the curation and the limiting of choice. And you and I have talked a lot about this because it's a big principle of behavioral economics, which is there's a lot out there, but the web causes people anxiety because they wonder whether or not they're missing something. When you get a magazine... Uh, we you can you what you we can, think is enough on this subject. You can don't. read it cover to cover, which you can't do with the web. Right. And on any given story, yeah, we're you know, there's certainly stuff to go do beyond this on the web, but we're saying if we're telling you a story about Peyton Manning, right now this is all we think you need to know. We could be wrong, but at least we're presenting with you a, a theory and a choice that you don't have to sort that doesn't leave you thinking like, Oh, maybe should I follow this link, should I follow that link? And I think that has a lot to do with our success. And I think it will but, have a lot to know, do with our success going forward. Well it's just I don't know if you want to talk about a competitor this explicitly, but you know, when I was a kid, the sporting news was – if you were a serious baseball fan, you loved it because of the numbers, because the data, the statistics that they publish with every issue. I used to look forward to reading the sports page in the morning for the same reason, to look at the box scores. Today, that doesn't sell. Um, you can't sell that. It's free. I can get it so much better on the web. So – do you spend a lot of time thinking about what you're doing that's different than what's free? Because there's a lot. I mean, I you know I'm not as big a fan of behavioral economics as you are. There's a lot of great stuff you can wander through on the web without paying a penny on sports. Right? You don't have to uh, 
you don't have to subscribe to any sports magazines anymore to be a fully informed sports fan. So what do you think of yourself as providing that's distinctive from that? Uh, besides the, tact, besides the tactile part. Obviously, there's something tactile, but tactile's losing right now. The, the, the Washington Post sports section is very different than it was 10 years ago. They're desperately trying to figure out a way to make something that people are going to want to pay for. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I know exactly what I'm selling. Uh, and so far, it's working. It, I don't know if it will in the future, but I, I know exactly what I'm selling. And I don't mean this in any way that's uh, cheerleaderish or rah-rah-ish. I am selling the uh, collective ideation of about 120 people who work for me who have a very specific idea and way of looking at sports that I think is unique and that is differentiated on multiple levels from anybody else in the sports world. And it's interesting and fun and curious and surprising and well-executed, and I think people are willing to pay for that because you can also you don't have to go to the movies either. Part of the movie thing, you and I will, will agree, is packed out. Yeah. You like being in a room with uh, big room. you leave your house, a, big a dark room. room, Yeah, good seats, big screen. But part of it is there's something about uh, getting that stuff when it comes out in a way that is um, that feels unique to the providers. And in our case, I think it's even there's even that uniqueness is even more pronounced. There's just not, and that's increasingly what I'm telling my staff, which is be more of who you are and what you would want to see as a sports fan. And it's my job to make this judgment. And the judgment is, will at least 10% of our readers like it? And will the other 90% not be offended? Because my feeling is, if every two weeks you get something in the magazine that makes you go, that's cool, and you don't hate everything else, right? Correct. I'm making this up. But no, that's right. I love The Economist. I love The Economist for a whole bunch of reasons, but especially they have a column called Lexington, right, which yep. is their comment on America. So I love Lexington. I love other things. But, let, but if I got Lexington in a magazine that otherwise had neo-Nazi propaganda, I Not still wouldn't it. get the magazine. Not worth it, yeah. Right. But it's hard but, to... So that's my job in a funny way, which is surpri- I, I got to look at what my staff wants to do or what I want to do, and I have to make the call... Is it worth doing for at least 10% of our readers? Not just my formula, by the way. You could argue that it should be 30% or it could be 5%, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. I think some, of, some number of our fans will be like, that's cool, and the other one of them won't be pissed off how and o- start to go like, I'm sick of this magazine. How often do you say no to those creative ideas? Um, you not know, very often. You know, I have a, the, the, the staffer says, I have a story idea to cover X, and you go, oh, my gosh, that's going to offend 90% um, or – I, I would say not very often, and it's not, I don't actually do it because I think it's going to offend people. The reason I – oh, that's a great question. The, when I turned it down, I, I think what you're asking in a funny way is when I turn it down, however often – I turn it down, I don't know. I can't think of a number. Maybe it's 5% of the time when they pitch. But, I would, but the next question ought to be or might be, what do you, I, how do you I turn say it, it down because it's going to offend people on yeah. the 90% or it's not going to reach the 10%? Yeah. And I think it's much more on the not going to reach the 10%. Generally, the stories that I – say, or the packages or ideas that I turned down or that I turned down with my senior management is I don't think enough people will be interested in it. Rarely do I say we can't do that because it'll piss people off. Big uh, summer for World Cup coming, or is that going to be... Uh... Oh, it's huge. We have a World Cup preview, by the way, just interestingly enough, that's a standalone. It's a newsstand special. It's selling higher than every other standalone newsstand special we've ever done, except for the Michael Jordan Hall. Why? Michael Jordan. Still Why? Why? It's doing unbelievably well. And in the regular magazine, we are working right now on our World Cup preview that we think is awesome. I used it as an example. The reason I asked about it as a joke is that 
I like soccer, but the average American doesn't. So why do you think it's doing so well? Well, because the average American, um, I'm not sure what you mean. I think there's probably like 40 or 50 million serious uh, soccer fans in this country, actually, which I guess is only 15%. But I actually think that, but of adults, I think it's much higher. I just think they happen to be um, paying attention to good soccer, which is soccer in Europe and, uh, well, most soccer in Europe, right? I think yeah. there have been people paying attention to soccer here for a long time. They just haven't been paying attention to American soccer. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, and I think uh, I, the, there, there is a very significant broadcast or cable network that pays a lot of attention to the World Cup and is paying more attention. Uh, and when that cable network pays attention to something in sports, you can't help for for uh, sports fans to pay attention to it. And that cable network, of course, is ESPN, right? Yep. We have the World Cup. We're making a big deal out of it. It will be a big deal. And by the way, pretty serious sports fans now at any level, even even stick and ball guys who otherwise couldn't care about soccer, the, the smart ones, the ones who are sort of wanting to be in the conversation, they, they kind of pay attention to the World Cup. Even guys who sort of say they don't, they watch that stuff, especially if the time zone works out. Because sports fans are just a little bit interested in the nature of sports, right? So even a guy who doesn't care at all about soccer, he's going to watch, you know, a match of Italy and Spain at some point if he knows it's around because he knows that's going to be a good game even if I don't quite understand it. And he might crack wise and say, eh, there's not enough scoring, whatever, but he'll be able to tell. There isn't enough scoring. Right, but he'll be able to tell what's good play, what's athleticism, what's interesting. And he, would, he may not want to commit to it and say, like, and buy season tickets to an American league, but he'll watch that stuff. The is, ratings, is, will, the is, ratings for us will, were good, and I imagine they'll be better this year. Is Greece in the World Cup? Is Greece in the World Cup? I would say almost assuredly no, but I don't want to for sure say yeah, that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think not either. But the Greece-Germany match would be entertaining, but I don't think ah. we're going to get one. Yeah. Um, well, we're almost out of time. Way, just, can I just say one thing? Sure. To give people a little bit of delight, you, you made me think of this Greece Germany. Oddly enough, of course, one of the greatest things of all time is on YouTube, which is if people put in Monty Python philosopher's soccer match, they will see five minutes of among the most enjoyable mock sports programming ever in the history of the world. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, right? I do. There's 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 no end to the delight on Econ Talk, and this is just the kind of <laughs> things that we provide without without any charge. Um, what I was going to ask you for, and I'm doing this, I'm putting you on the spot. So you know, this is uh, the magic of uh, pseudo radio. You can you can say I, I'm not ready for this question. Uh, those of you out there who've been paying attention probably have realized that Gary and I have known each other for a long time, and I'll just mention that he's been a uh, gloriously helpful editor to me. He only edits ten percent of the time, but he's been an incredible contributor to all my books as a friend, uh, an editor, and I I deeply appreciate it, Gary. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here, though, because this is one of my favorite things. There are many things I like about Gary. One of his is card tricks. So I'm not going to ask you to do the card trick because uh, you're not ready. But but what I will ask you to do is talk about some of your favorite trivia questions. If you have them at the tip of your fingers, they could be sports just in the spirit of this conversation. Um, and if you want to share those with our listeners, we can decide whether to – uh, leave them unanswered uh, on the web or answer them on the web um, as they come up or whatever you feel like. Do you have you know, it? I always, you know, as you know, um, my, uh, my, I'm, and I'm I should, hang on, I should mention you're the, you're the co-author of the encyclopedia, which oh, is yeah, the ESPN sports encyclopedia, 23 ways to get to first base. Right. And, and so Gary knows a lot of very useless things such as the 23 ways to get to first base, but we're not that, that one, Put to the well, side. 
I, the, I'll, use this as, I'll use this as a moment to talk to you about trivia questions in general, because I actually have a philosophy about them that I think is actually a, a, a very good philosophy. Of course, I would think that it's I'm mine. so surprised. Um, which is that the best trivia questions do one of two things, and in some ways both, which is, because you can always ask people obscure things about anything. It's like, okay, I don't know that, and I don't care that I don't know that. Right? The great, a great trivia question either um, makes you wish you makes you happy that you now know it or makes you think, darn, I should have known it, right? So it's like, um, you know, it can't just be, um, to to somebody of your and my generation, Russell, it's like you don't care where, you don't care um, what the name of the, you know, the Felix and Oscar's neighbor was on The Odd Couple, maybe the real name, but you very much care or you would find it cool to know what the professor's real name was on Gilligan's Island, right? Because it's like an iconic character, and you're like, oh, I didn't even know he had a real name. And if I told you that (laughs) in the first episode of the show, they talked about the skipper and the professor's real name on a radio broadcast when they were marooned on the island. So I think trivia questions have to sort of be meaningful. But So as a result, I'm always looking for... Which is a contradiction, right? Yes, exactly. Because it's an oxymoron, a a meaningful trivia, trivia question. Exactly. So I'm always trying to think of the best trivia question in each category, and I, I have a couple. That I'm actually not, I'm not going to give you sports ones, but I think there's, there's a couple of great ones, which is what, what, in the category of awards, uh, in the category of, of awards, I have two, that, uh, well, one, um, which is the Nobel Peace Prize. I think I might have told you this, but the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm not going to, just for the record, I'm not going to answer any of these. Oh, okay. We're just going to let them the sit. The Nobel Peace Prize has been given out every year. It was founded, I believe, in 1903, except for one year. Now, you can do this in various levels, because I could just sort of simply say, what was the year and why? Or I could tell you the year and then say why, because it's a really cool, interesting reason. The Nobel Peace Prize was not given out. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you going to say it? I'm going to give the year, but not why. Okay. It was not given out in 1948. Okay. And the question is, why? Right. You, a natural guess would be during one of the world wars. 43. Right, correct. You know. uh, so that's one thing. Another great question is, I believe this is the greatest movie question of all time, even though it's kind of also an awards question, but this is my single favorite movie question. I know I've told you this, which is, there is one role and only, and only one role for which two people have received an Academy Award. An Oscar, meaning I'm making this up, but like you know, Kate Blanchett uh, and um, Catherine Hepburn, I think both were nominated uh, at different times for playing you know Elizabeth, but the Queen. Neither one of them, or not both of them, did not win. So that's there not is the one role. I'm not saying if it's a fictional role or a historical role or a real role, the portrayal of which won two people. Academy Award. That's very nice. I like that one. I love that one. Um, and uh, uh, my third one that I will give, just because I think it's delightful, is in the 1950s, <laughs> there was a fourth Rice Krispies elf. No. Yes. Snap, crackle, pop, and I blank. think it, Zeppo. No, that's sorry. And that's and that's and the wrong I answer. I tell you, <laughs> as a hint, is that it bespoke the cereal's vitamin content. Very nice. <laughs> and I just love that. I don't know if it's my favorite food one, but it's close. You have another. You have a second favorite food one. Um, I do, but I, I don't want to share it right now. All right. 
And, you know, my nephew, um, I don't know if, we, if he remembers this, but my nephew, was, he remembers that he was a writer on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. But I am, uh, in order to get the job, he had to submit uh, a ladder of questions, and I believe I gave him his million-dollar question, or at least it was one of his highest questions, uh, which was, I love this because it's one of the definitions, it meets the definition of trivia twice over in that this trivia question is about one of the most famous stories in the Western canon. I'm certain I've told you this. When I tell you what the subject is, you'll be like, oh, yeah, my God, that's like famous to everybody in who knows the Western canon, right? And Western literature. And the, it's a great fact because it is so close in the literary document to the main story, yet nobody seems to know it. And it is, after Cain killed Abel, and as you, you know, would you agree that that's one of the most famous stories in Western Definitely. literature? Definitely. After Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve, as many uh, parents do, had a replacement child. Uh, and the question is, what was the name of the child? And it's, uh, it surprises people. That's uh, an easy one to look up, though. You, it's that, an easy one to look up, but people still cool. Sort of, remember, in Millionaire, what you would do is actually they would give you four choices. Right. I don't think I'll do that because I think uh, we'll I leave it. Let's it. leave it unanswered. You have, there you go. You, you have I a, think there is. A, I think I do have a um, a good sports one. And don't you have a good? Don't one. you have a good presidential one? Yes, that's what I was going to give okay. you. Which is, which is there are I believe four. I believe it's four um, universities that have produced four and only four that have produced um, both a president of the, Uni- of the United States and a Super Bowl MVP, at least one. Four, pre- four universities that have produced both a president of the United States and a Super Bowl MVP. Um, for- at least three. I'm, I'm not sure about the fourth. My guest today has been Gary Belsky of ESPN the Magazine. Gary, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.